as you know, for those of you who have been with us, we've been going through the prophets. We're in that part of the Old Testament. Uh, next week, it's not so much we're taking a break from the prophets as we're going to focus in on one aspect of the prophets. Many of the prophets talk about the coming of the Messiah. There's lots of passages that deal with that. Some of the passages are very specific to the recognizing and the coming of Jesus. So next week and for the next two or three weeks after that, we're going to stop going through the prophets in general and look at messianic prophecy. The reason I'm doing that is I realized when I taught on Micah last week that there's a good messianic prophecy in there, but that could have taken the whole lesson. But I wanted to teach on the book of Micah, not just that one piece. It's the same with Isaiah. There's a several messianic prophecies in there, and then what about Isaiah? And it's not like I want to spend months on the prophets. So I just thought the best thing would to do would to take the key messianic prophecies and share them next week and for the next coming couple of weeks. Prophecies are extremely important. You don't get prophecies in other religion. You may get this vague stuff like, you know, the big light in the sky and the dawn will go dark and many people will fight. Well, yeah, that's never happened before. But in the Bible you get, this is going to happen on this day, this will be his name, and he'll do this, this, and this, so you know exactly who he is. You get some of the vague stuff in the Bible too, but you get the very specific stuff. And so in sharing your faith with non-believers or seekers, why should I believe the Bible? Well, let me share with you why you should believe the Bible. And if you get the privilege of sharing with Jewish people, even so, let me show you why Jesus fits the bill as the Jewish Messiah. So after two or three weeks, you're going to have a good handle on that sort of thing. But today, we are in the prophet Hosea. I've got the chart up here. If you want one of these charts, we ran out of them, but just contact the office. We can get you a PDF and email it to you or print one up for you. Um, take a look right in here because that's where we're at. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those are the guys in the green on the bottom, the kings of Judah. And also during the reign of Jeroboam, he's up there in the yellow, the biggest box there son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So this is basically the very first sentence of Hosea is telling us exactly where and when he ministered. You'll see this on the chart, that his ministry is pretty long, from roughly 750 B.C. to like 710 or so, 15 B.C. So he was a prophet for many years. Many kings knew of him during his ministry and many other prophets. Uh, Amos would have known him, Micah and Isaiah ministered at the same time as he ministered. So he's a, a pretty key prophet. And his book, you know, it might be amongst the minor prophets, but it's not that small of a book. So he makes quite an impact with his book. And he's significant. I would say that his book is, has probably one of the most troubling concepts in all the Bible. It's not confusing like the doctrine of the Trinity or the virgin birth. It's not troubling in the sense of creation evolution when we look at Genesis. This is troubling morally, spiritually, theologically from that perspective. Listen. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife. Go marry a whore. See, the NIV tries to make it nicer than it really says. Some translations even say, go marry a prostitute. 
Beg pardon? You mean I'm a holy prophet serving God with all my heart and life and you want me to marry a hooker? Yeah. Why? Go take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because, here's the why, the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. God is really big on object lessons. With God, it's not just that he tells people what's right and what's wrong. He wants to show them, give them an object lesson. Throughout the whole Bible, you'll see this with God. For example, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. This wasn't a small thing. God just didn't say, there can be sacrifice for sin. Let's move on to the next book. He said, I want you to build a tabernacle this long, this wide, made out of all these materials. You're going to have a candlestick in it. You're going to have this thing covered with gold with these beings with wings. You're going to put the Ten Commandments inside. You're going to have a big basin of water out front. There's going to be an entrance. When the priest comes in, he's got to wash at the basin. Then he's got to do a sacrifice. Here's what you can sacrifice. Here's what you can't sacrifice. Here's when you do sacrifice. Here's when you don't sacrifice. Here's how you, here's how you sacrifice. Here's who's allowed to do the sacrifice. Wow! Very detailed. There's a whole book in the Bible called Leviticus given to the details. Plus it's mentioned in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. God was trying to make a lesson for the people. And it wasn't just enough that he said sacrifice will work. They actually had to do the sacrifice. They had to learn the system. Do it with their hands. Smell the blood. See the smoke come up. It would have been enough if he just said, but it wasn't enough. And that didn't just end the object lessons from God. Israel had a dress code. He told them to wear garments with fringes on them. Maybe you've seen something like this before on TV or in a magazine, or maybe you know some religious people who are Jewish. And you always wondered, why do they wear that prayer thing? Let me read to you a passage of Scripture. Well, no, that's for the next one. There's a passage. I didn't print it up for you. He told the Jewish people to put fringes on the borders of their garments. So all their clothes had to have fringes. Orthodox Jews to this very day still have fringes on all their clothes. The way they do it is they wear a t-shirt with fringes on it and put the fringes outside their clothes so they always have fringes. This is kind of a, an accommodation to that concept. And they do it in a very interesting way. These have a certain set of knots in them. And if you count up the, the knots, they represent all 613 commandments found in the Old Testament. It's pretty cool. So it's not like God just said, you are special people to me and I want your lives dedicated to me. I want the way you dress dedicated to me. I want the materials in your clothes to be only this kind but not this kind. The foods you can eat, cows are good, pigs are out. The way they ate, the way they prepared the food, the way they dressed... God had a hand in everything, and it was all to make lessons, all to teach them something, to inform them about things. Object lessons. The way they eat, the way they dress. Now, these can look a number of different ways. I know it's probably hard to see this from the back, uh, but you can come up and see it later, or you can just exit through our main entrance and look off to the left, and you'll see one up on the doorframe. The way you say doorframe in Hebrew is mezuzah. This is called a mezuzah because a piece of the Bible gets put in it and it gets affixed to the doorframe of Jewish people's homes. 
the observant Jewish people put them on every door in their house except the bathroom, which is pretty cool, kind of respectful not to put it on that door. Listen, here's the passage I wanted to read to you before. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So God says, I'm giving you my words and I want you to teach them to your children. But more than that, I want you to put them on the door frame of your houses. There are some Jewish people, including my family more than once, who when they have houses built, actually write the Ten Commandments on the door frame of the house before it gets finished. So there's a couple houses around Tucson with the Ten Commandments written on them. If you ever peel off the paint and rip off the door frame, underneath the supporting wood, there it is. It's a nice thing to do. This house is God's house. And every time I walk through the door, I remember that I dedicated this house to God because he gave it to me and I serve him. It's a good thing to do. One of the most object lesson oriented uh, uh, prophets was Ezekiel. Now we will deal with Ezekiel when we get to him, but man, did he have to do some serious object lessons. Listen. Now, son of man, this is God talking to the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel lived, you don't need to pull up the chart, towards the end at the destruction of Judah, right around that tame frame. So he was there before it was destroyed and ministered to the people after. So God used him to warn them about coming judgment. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Okay, he's got to do this art project. And I imagine he's probably doing it right at the city gates of Jerusalem, if not at the temple itself, so people can see. Take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. So you could see him there. And everybody walking by saying, Zeke, what are you doing? I'm drawing Jerusalem. Why? Watch and see. So maybe he had a crowd around him while he's doing this project. Draw the city of Jerusalem on it. And maybe he finished it and they said, you know, not bad. The guy can draw. Pretty nice likeness of Jerusalem, but what's the point? We've seen better in the marketplace. Then lay siege to it. Okay, so now we've got a prophet who's laying siege to Jerusalem. You live there. What are you thinking? You're thinking this guy's not so good. He's showing you that your city is going to be attacked. They're probably not liking Ezekiel at this point. Lay siege to it. So he's probably building little people and putting up the, the siege towers, making a whole little cool G.I. Joe collection, you know. Going to war. Lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it. Put battering rams around it. So this is actually happening. He's building these things, laying them all out, and people are seeing Jerusalem being attacked before it's being attacked. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Because it's a sign because he's a prophet. What he's doing, he's foretelling what's going to happen, and you know there's no way they were happy to see this. But it gets even more interesting. Bear with me. I continue reading. 
Then lie down on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. So we've got the whole G.I. Joe Jerusalem siege work going down, and then he just lays down. People walking by him. Dude, get up. I can't get up. God told me to lay down. I'm bearing the sin of Israel. Well, how long you got to lay there? I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days... You will bear the sin of the... 390 days. He laid on his left side in front of a game for over a year. Can you imagine? Talk about an object lesson. You think after a while, you know, strangers are visiting Jerusalem. Uh, did, did, did I... Did, is there a guy laying on the street with a big toy in front of him? What's up with that? Yeah, he's one of the prophets. You know them. They're all crazy. But the religious people might have said, you know, this is a prophet of God. He's trying to tell us, well, what's the message? Ah, go ask him. What a testimony. What a witness he was. You know, maybe we should come up with some interesting ways to share the gospel. People ignore us otherwise. I have no doubt that's why God's doing this. You couldn't ignore that. So lay there for 390 days. After you finish this, Sorry, got to move. Lie down again, this time on your right side. And bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have signed you 40 days, a day for each year. So 390 days plus 40 days. This guy was doing some serious lying around. Why? To communicate God's message, the warning of coming judgment and the severity of it as a physical living, breathing object lesson. I mean, it's not every day you see a pastor laying down during a sermon, right? It's not every day they saw a prophet laying down in front of a G.I. Joe encampment either. It really got their attention. God has his people doing some interesting things. It didn't end there. Ezekiel, man, he had a wild life. It Let's see if I can do this here. All right. It didn't end there. Then God tells him, now I want you to shave. So I'm thinking he probably let his hair and face grow. He probably had a huge beard, bushy hair. He says, now I want you to shave, but with a sword. So Ezekiel's been laying down for a year and a half or whatever, 390 plus 40 equals. And then he gets up. And I could imagine everybody in town went, he's getting up. He's finally getting up. What's going to happen now? And he pulls out a sword. Did he grab it off of somebody walking by? Did he carry one? I don't know. And now he puts it up to his face, and everybody's like, dude, stop! What are you doing? And he starts to shave with his sword. You know, ladies, shaving, well, you do your legs, but, you know, getting a blade right up against your neck, it's a little scary. And those nice, fine, covered razors that we men use, you know, it's a little scary. And we, sometimes we get nicked. There is no way you're going to catch me shaving my face with a sword. Well, God told him to, so he's going to do it. It had to be a sharp sword, razor sharp. And he shaves his face. Then he starts shaving his hair. Now, he's probably got a big pile of hair. Jewish people can grow some hair. I keep mine short for a reason. I'd be a fro-bro otherwise. My hair just like a tumbleweed. So I keep it short. If I didn't cut my hair for 
that long. And who knows, he, he undoubtedly, being Jewish, had a beard before that, too. He, he, he had a lot of hair. God says, now what I want you to do is weigh it. Uh, weigh it. Put it on a scale. That's what weigh and scale, weigh it. Weigh it. Put it on a scale. Divide it up. Some of it now you're going to burn. So he sits there and he sparks a fire and he burns some hair. And the people are like, ooh, that stinks. What are you doing? Some of it he puts on scales. Some of it he puts on the ground. He starts beating it with the sword. I'm sure the people are looking at him. He has gone totally nuts. What are you doing? But there is a reason for all of it. Everything that he did had some aspect to do with the judgment that God was going to pour out on Judah. Every piece of it. But it gets, in my opinion, it gets even worse. There was another prophet at another time that was supposed to give a warning of judgment. Listen to his story. Isaiah chapter 20. At that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body. Sackcloth is the clothes you wore when you were mourning. I want you to take off your sackcloth and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Well, certainly he kept on his small clothes. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone around stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with their butts bared. Isaiah ran around with his butt bared? Maybe I'm misinterpreting that passage, but I don't think so. I think this man ran around butt naked for three years. Why would God have him do that? That's disgusting. Well, in our culture it is. In that culture, it was less disgusting and more shameful. More indicative of exactly what happens during war. You know, when war happens, people flee and oftentimes not clothed. This is a perfect example of what's going to happen to you people. You know what? God will go to some crazy extremes to teach people lessons. We do the same, but in a positive way. Yar. Right? right? He was a pirate for vacation Bible school, and a very good one at that. Why in the world would a grown man dress up as a pirate? To help communicate a message and a lesson. When we did the, the vacation pirate school, Bible school with the pirates, it was great. It was fun. I don't know what they're going to be dressing up this year, being in Babylon and all, but I'm sure it's going to be just as fun. Why do we do that? It's an object lesson. Helps drive a lesson home. But the more serious the lesson, the more serious the object lesson. And sometimes God's just got to get our attention, and he will do some crazy, some severe things to get people's attention. He made a bush talk once for Moses. He made a donkey talk once for Balaam. God's in the business of saving people, and there's nothing going to stop him from doing it. And if somebody's got to lay on his side for 390 days to get somebody's attention, if there's just a slim chance that somebody might get saved from it, he'll do it. Well, I'm thankful I'm no prophet. <laughs> But you know God has object lessons for us to, to this very day, and they're not just pirates. What we do every month, communion is an object lesson. Jesus died for our sin. And it wasn't just enough to say it. He wants us to live it out in an interesting way. So once a month, 
We eat broken pieces of unleavened bread because Jesus said that represents his broken body, which was broken for us. And we drink some grape juice. It's red like his blood that was poured out for our sins. This is an object lesson to remind us of the greatest sacrifice the world has ever known. Now, for us, it's a reminder. But for Jesus, it was real. Jesus literally had his body shredded for us and his blood poured out. Well, usually we do this the first Sunday of the month, but it fit in with the lesson, so I said, let's just do it today. And why wait till the end of the service? Why not do it right now? So what I'm going to do right now is encourage you to come up and take communion. Um, as I tell people, communion is for those people who have committed themselves to Jesus Christ 100%. If you've not yet made that decision, please just wait for us. We'll be done in a couple of minutes. If you did make that decision, but you're not living it out, you have two options. The best one is to apologize to God, repent, and take communion. But if you're not there in your heart, just let it pass. Just sit in your pew, and we'll be done in a couple of minutes. So examine your hearts. You know where you're at with God. And then please come up and take communion when you're ready. And then come sit down again, and we'll finish with the lesson. When I was talking to my associate from Saturdays, Michael, about today's lesson, told him, you know, I'm going to talk about object lessons from the Bible. I'm going to do Ezekiel, so I'm going to lay down on the floor, make sure the camera guys are ready. And he said, you're going to, do, you're going to lay on the ground? He said, yeah. He said, you're not going to do what Isaiah did, are you? <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not. And uh, we're all very relieved to know I don't take it that far. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hosea's relationship with his wife, can you imagine what that object lesson did for him? It wasn't just a marriage, it was a life's commitment to pain and misery. When we finally find somebody that we think might become a spouse for us, it's a hard decision for the men to, to propose and for the women to agree to the proposal because we know we're committing to something. The biggest commitment in life what if it doesn't work out? What if he's got this problem? What if she's got that problem? What if we're together for a couple years and it doesn't work out? And God forbid, what if he cheats on me? This was already set up to fail. I want you to marry a bad woman who's going to cheat on you. Now, Hosea was a good man. And he loved this woman. When she left him and went and sold her body and ended up on the slave auction... He went and bought her back. I'd have been good riddance. He brought her back again and again. Just like Israel went away from God, worshiping idols, spiritual prostitution, spiritual adultery, and God kept accepting her back. And it wasn't that God just tolerated it. God kept going, wooing her, sending prophets, sending blessings. Even when they were worshiping idols, he sent blessings, hoping to win Israel back. But she was just so unfaithful to him. And I can't help but think that Gomer, the wife, I mean, we know that Hosea was handpicked, but she was handpicked too. Why that? bad woman, and not any other number of bad women. I don't know. But maybe she needed the love of Hosea to testify in her life. Maybe nobody else would have done for her. Maybe he rescued her 
from a life of waywardness through his constant love, forgiveness, and grace. The stories in the Bible are just powerful, but they're not stories. This really happened. It's history. Well, so God says this. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to Baals. Punish her, her being Israel. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. That is what I would expect to be the end of the story. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, and now I'm just going to punish her, and that's the end of it. But that's only verse 13 of chapter 2. Listen to what the next verse says. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. God saying, my unfaithful, whoring wife, spouse, I'm going to chase down and win back. Wow. This is a lesson about God's love for sinful people. But for those of you struggling in your marriages right now, may it also be a lesson to you. God doesn't quit, and he doesn't want us to quit either. You're saying, Steve, you do not know him. He's an idiot. You may be right. He may be an idiot, but even idiots have hope. Just keep praying for him. But it hurts. I know it hurts. Hang in there. Hang in there. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. This is the NIV. The King James helps us understand it a little better, but the Hebrew is better still. Um, there's a play on words going here. He said they were worshiping Baal, the Baals. Baal is the Hebrew word for Lord and master, but it's also the Hebrew word for husband. So there's a play on words going. No longer will you call me Baal, the false god, but you will call me my husband. Good plan, words going there. You will no longer call me my master, Baal. I will remove the name of Baal from your lips. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love, and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. God considers Israel his bride. When Israel goes after idols, God considers that adultery. When we sell ourselves to idolatry, which we had, God considers that prostitution. Israel was a faithless bride. Jesus also has a bride. God the Father considered Israel his bride. Jesus considers the church his bride. For those of you that don't know the technical term, church refers to the followers of Jesus Christ, whether they're from Israel or the nations, it doesn't matter. So the bride of Christ is his church. Listen to what the Bible says. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two of them will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. All right. So we have a similar relationship, but we're the faithful bride. Well, 
I hope you are. Some of you are, some of you aren't. It gets kind of scary. Hosea did not have this difficult marriage for himself. He put himself out for love's sake and for faithfulness and obedience to God. Ezekiel did not lay on his side and whack off his hair with a sword and do all these crazy things because it made him popular and because he wanted to do it. He did it for love's sake for the children of Israel and because of his faithfulness and obedience to God. Isaiah didn't walk around shamefaced and embarrassed for three years because he liked it. He did it out of love, for love's sake, and out of his obedience and love for God. Jesus did not die on that cross because he liked it. He did it for love's sake and out of obedience and faithfulness to God. He did it for you. He did it for me. I suppose if there's anything I want you to learn this morning is to memorize this one verse if you don't already have it memorized. It's 1 John 4.11, and here's what it says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I could be done. Lesson over. But the thing is, I'm telling you to go home and love one another. And I don't want to take it for granted that you know exactly what that means. Remember, throughout all this, God always said, examples, live it out, do it, show them. What's an example of love? So, some practical pointers, some advice. You can add to the list, you can make it better, and only you can do it. But here's some ideas on how you can step out of your comfort zone and let love explode in your life. Here's one, witnessing. Sometimes we hesitate to share our faith with other people. We're embarrassed. We're afraid they'll make fun of us, reject us. Just remember the prophet Isaiah. And maybe witnessing isn't so hard after all. And remember, this, you're not witnessing for your benefit. It's for love's sake. If they're willing to do that to maybe win somebody, the least we can do is share our faith with people. So... Man up. Be brave. Be like a prophet. Tell people what they need to hear that maybe only you can tell them. There is a Savior. Of course, they need to know that they need to be saved first. So you might have to talk about sin a little bit. Maybe a lot. But tell them it's not all bad news. Jesus wants to take you to heaven with him forever. Let me encourage you to witness a little more. How about serving in the church? Well, I don't want to serve in the church. I'm too busy. You know, it's not for you. It's for love's sake. It's for others. One of the things that frustrates those of us in leadership is almost every week we're up here asking for volunteers for things. That's not how it should be. Everybody in the church should be knocking down our door for an opportunity to do something. We should be looking for jobs for you as opposed to having jobs looking for you. But we don't do that. See, we're too busy. We're too into ourselves. But let me encourage you, step out of your comfort zone for love's sake, not because it's for you, but for love's sake. Maybe you are good with your hands. Well, if you are, we don't want you in the nursery. Volunteer once a month. Give one day a month to working on this campus, painting, scraping, using the plunger, cleaning a floor. Give a day a month. Is that too much to ask for love's sake? A day a month? 
but it's a lot more than we're getting now. Maybe you're not good with your hands. Maybe you love children. Va vacation Bible school. A week of work. Do it. Love it. Enjoy it. Yes, you're going to have to get up early and get here at 8 or 9 o'clock every day for a whole week. Life's rough. Little kids might end up going to heaven as a result of your getting up early. <laughs> Don't do it. Definitely not worth it. I'm so sarcastic, aren't I? I can't help it. I'm sorry. It's that nastiness inside of me. It just comes out bad. We hate talking about money because so many people are critical of churches because churches are always asking for money. I don't know that that's true. Some churches do, some churches don't, but it, frankly, it's irrelevant. Money is one way that we worship God, and money greases the wheels of ministry. It's just that simple. We can't reach out to people on the Internet and turn on the lights and pay salaries without money. That's how it comes, and it comes from you. But how much do you give? Do you give enough? That's another way to sacrificially give. Witnessing, serving, basically serving God with your time, your talents, and your treasures. It all comes down to putting God first. We don't often do that. Jesus gave 100% for us. What percent of your life are you willing to give him in return? Hosea, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jesus. That's not the full list. Put your name on that list. Because you're, you're one of them. You've got a life to live for God. Just figure out how you're going to do it. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I just pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us in service. Uh, don't let my bold, arrogant way of speaking be a detraction to the message. Please help people understand how much you have given for us and help us to give just a little piece back, to be loving, selfless people who don't just talk the talk but walk the walk. And I'll put myself on the first of the list, Lord. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Help me to be a better servant to yours, I pray. In Jesus' name, and for his sake, for his glory, and his kingdom, I pray. Amen. Yisadonai panvalecha v'yoseim lecha shalom. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. God bless you all. See you Wednesday night.